0: When I was a little boy, I loved baseball. I felt like baseball was my whole life as a kid. Now, baseball is a beautiful game, but I loved baseball for one simple reason. My dad loved baseball, and it was our thing, a thing we did together. If I close my eyes, I could almost see my dad's face, see him playing catch with me in our yard, See him coaching my Little League teams throughout the years. See him gathering up us boys in a huddle for a pep talk. Every one of us looking up to him like a hero. What I wouldn't give to go back to those days. To see his face again. But he's been gone for almost 11 years now. Every year this face fades in my memory. It gets harder and harder to see it. But last year I got the closest I've come in a long time. And that's when I was coaching my young son, who was six years old. We played catch in the yard. I coached him on the same exact Boonesboro fields that my dad coached me. On those fields with my son, I can see my dad clearer than anywhere else. I can almost see him in color again. This episode is about sports. It's about a young boy who loves his coach dearly, and it's about grasping for memories, longing for a chance to see those days of old and color just one more time. This is Ira Glass of This American Life introducing you to Lynchburg Neighborhood. Hey, neighbors, it's your host, Billy Hansen. And if you're a regular listener of the Lynchburg Neighborhood, you know two things about that Ira Glass intro. Number one, you know that Ira has never, ever heard this program. But when I met him earlier this year, he was super gracious to record this intro for me. The second thing that you know is that we only use the Ira Glass intro when we're trying to tell a story. Our story starts a man named J.P. Vaughn. If that name sounds familiar, it's because episodes one and three of this podcast are about J.P. Vaughn. Now, I had known of J.P. for a few years, but I didn't really get to know him until about two years ago when I profiled him for a local business magazine. He was 82 years old at the time, and I had chosen him for this feature Because so many people that I talked to had said what an amazing guy he was and what a long and storied career he'd had in business. And it turned out it was all true. I interviewed him several times, shadowed him, met with a lot of his family and friends, and he really was this great guy. And what was even more surprising is we became friends, like real friends. Like we hang out. The two of us. We spend time together well after the story was done. And so this is really cool experience of making a new friend later in life. The older you get, the more you realize what a joy that is. Now, the focus of the story I was writing about him was supposed to be about this 60-year career in business. But when I went to talk with him, it became about something different. It ended up being the story of a young boy that was so impacted by his Sandlot football coach in the 1940s that he spent the rest of his life trying to pay forward this gift by coaching and mentoring people in both business and sports. Here's what I wrote in the story about J.P.'s early football years. Born in 1935, J.P. was the only child of Joe and Ora Vaughn, who both worked at the Craddock Terry Shoe Factory in Lynchburg. From his father, J.P. inherited a strong work ethic and a remarkably high level of empathy for other people. As a boy, J.P. spent most of his days playing ball with friends at his beloved Miller Park, a short walk from his Park Avenue home. In 1945, their Sandlot Games took on mythic proportions when Happy Lee, the park's playground director, pulled together a group of blue-collar boys to form the Mighty Mites football team. J.P. and the rest of the boys adored their young coach, who taught them how to play as a team to always look out for each other. After two undefeated seasons and even besting the shoeless wonders, the team went on to win the Pop Warner Santa Claus Bowl in Philadelphia in 1948 to become national champion. Now, I loved JP's stories about the Mighty Mites so much that when we launched this podcast, I had him come on for episode three and tell us the story of the Mighty Mites. A few years before that, he had written this beautiful piece about the Mighty Mites and his experience. And the way it came about is that he'd gone to this writing group with his wife. And he really didn't know why he was there, what he would write about. But his wife suggested that, why don't you write about the Mighty Mites? That's really special to you. And as he started to write, the words just fell out on the page. And it came together in this really beautiful story that he wrote. Now, in case you think I'm playing up uh, the emotional impact of this team on JP's life, I want you to listen to this clip, where he describes the bus ride home from Philadelphia to Lynchburg after winning the national championship.
1: We sang Carry Me Back to Old Virginia. We laughed and played card games, which made the 18 hour trip bearable and almost enjoyable. We were told that hundreds of people would be on hand to greet us. But when the bus rolled into the hill city after midnight, Only a few parents were there to see their sleepy-eyed champions stumble from the tired, lumbering bus. We did enjoy our celebrity status for a while with newspaper articles, banquets, gifts, and an occasional good job from folks passing through the park on their way to the factories, east of our utopia. However, our real rewards were intrinsic. We loved Miller Park. We loved Happy Lee. We loved our teammates incredibly. After almost 70 years, we still do.
0: Clearly, there is a lot wrapped up in those old days that I'm not making up or projecting. It's true to J.P. Here's what J.P. had to say about his beloved coach, Happy Lee.
1: These were the boys who Happy referred to individually as call it. These were the Mighty Mites, the soldiers who followed Happy Lee, our leader, into battle during those post-war years at Mellow Park.
0: When we released this episode, we got this great response from other people that had never heard of the Mighty Mites, but they'd had these similar experiences as kids, playing youth sports or some youth activities, That just really meant a lot to them, and his story really resonated. But there was one thing that he had said to me in passing that kind of stuck in my brain. And what he had said was, he'd always wondered if there was a tape of that game. So when they went up to Philadelphia, they played in two games. The semifinal game against a team from Omaha, and the championship game against the home team from Philadelphia. And he always wondered if there was a tape. He remembered his dad seeing a film crew there, and he just would love to see it in color. To see those days again, all he has are a handful of black and white photos and a couple of newspaper clippings. But he told me it would just mean so much to him if he could see a tape of that game. But to see it, you'd have to answer two big questions. Question one, does a tape of the game even exist? Right? Like, is there actually a tape of the game? This was done in the 40s, and it likely would have been reel-to-reel. 70 years later, would this tape even still exist? Who, Who would hang on to it? But let's say you knew that it existed. Question two, how do you find it? How do you find who has it? Where do you start? And what JP told me is that about 10 years ago, there was a call out of the blue that helped him answer the first question that yes a tape did exist but unfortunately the answer to the second question who had the tape and how to get it were still far out of reach here i'll let jp tell it that's a good segue so the mighty mites you guys played um and you told me one time that you heard the game was taped. That somebody videotaped the game, but you've never seen the tape. Tell me that story. Well,
1: you know, the news people were there. And my father's memory, uh, he's been dead for a long time now, but his memory was it was ABC. Um, But they were filming the game. And uh, then later, many, many years later, Uh, Darrell Laurent, who was with the news in advance, got a phone call from a fellow in Omaha, Nebraska, and asked him had he ever heard of a team called the Mighty Mites. And Darrell said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I was just at their reunion banquet to which he came as our guest. And the guy said, well, my father played against them, and they were in awe of this team, and he was always talking about them, and these guys are getting older, and I was thinking it would nice, be nice if they could get together or connect. He said, we have a film of their game, and this was with the Omaha Pure Packs. We have a film of that game that I put on a DVD and put music to it. And Darrell said, well, I'll get in touch with uh, this guy I know, talking about me and, Kay, and Darrell lost the guy's name and telephone number, so I have written to this newspaper in Omaha and called on numerous occasions and asked would someone put something in to try to find this guy to get a copy of it. Uh, and we keep losing players, so it's it's going to get down to maybe just one or two people to be able to watch it. Hmm. But it was filmed, and you know, somewhere in the archives of. ABC, and now Disney, or ESPN, who
0: knows uh, whether it's there or not. And that's so painful, right? To come that close to fulfilling this bucket list item, to see yourself in one of your best moments of your childhood, and then to still be so far away. Now what J.P. told me was that he tried to find it after this near miss. That he called Omaha. And he thought, well, they call it our paper here, I'll call their paper there. So he called the Omaha World Herald and tried to get in touch with the sports editor. Maybe somebody would know something about this team from the 1940s, the Omaha Pure Packs. But everywhere he called was a dead end. He could get no response, he could get no traction, and eventually he gave up. So when he told me this story, I decided right in that moment that someday I would go looking for this tape. Now at this point, you need to know something about me. I am a complete nerd. And I love mysteries. When I was a kid, I loved to read. And one of my favorite book series was Encyclopedia Brown. And some of you may instantly recognize that name, But for those who don't, let me tell you about it. So in this book, Encyclopedia Brown was this smart little boy whose dad was the local police chief. And the book was basically him solving cases. Cases from the neighborhood, cases that his dad was struggling with, and the whole idea as the reader was you would try to figure out the clues and figure out what happened. Encyclopedia Brown would set up in his garage at a little table and put up a little sign that said Encyclopedia Brown Detective Agency. And someone would come into his garage and plunk a quarter on his table and hire him to solve a mystery. As a kid, I desperately wanted to solve mysteries. I tried to invent mysteries, but mysteries don't work that way. Mysteries have to come to you. And so when JP was sitting in my garage, telling me about this near miss on finding this long lost tape, I felt like he had come into my garage and he had set a quarter down on my desk and he had hired me. And now I finally had a mystery I could sink my teeth into. So without him knowing at all, I decided I'm on the case. And I didn't tell JP that I was going to work on it because I didn't want to get his hopes up. Because honestly, the odds of me ever finding anything were really, really low. The chances of me being able to find anyone, them still being alive and them still having the tape, I mean, it's just very unlikely. So I didn't tell JP a thing. All right, so before we get into the case, I just want to take a second to give some context around the actual object that we're searching for, this lost object. So it's a tape of a football game from 1948. Now, videotape is everywhere today. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned getting to coach my young son. So when he was six years old, he had his very first baseball game. And he had practiced and practiced and practiced in the yard. He was so excited for his very first at bat. And the coach pitched the ball in, and he had a great hit. Let me play the clip for you. Okay, so that was my wife recording it and the one who yelled when he hit the ball. And it was a really fun moment. And we'll have it forever, right? That's an easily shareable video that we can put up to the cloud, we can put on Instagram, we can put on Facebook, and we can easily share that video forever. And the thing you don't know about that hit is that there are actually six video angles of it. There was my wife by the dugout. There was my cousin behind home plate and my aunt behind home plate with their phones. There was my video down the third base line as the third base coach. And there was their grandma and their grandpa with their cameras down the third base line. So we have six angles of a six year old's first at bat. That's just one example of how prevalent video is with our kids today. Whether it's a poetry recital, a sporting event, birthday party, we have tons of video and tons of angles of everything. And they're all in this really easy to share format. So in 20 years, if I show my son a video of him hitting a baseball in his very first at bat, that might seem nice to him but it's not going to be amazing like he's seen videos over and over his whole childhood through his young adulthood of him doing things like that's not going to be this huge exciting find he might indulge me a little bit but it's not going to be amazing but now let's say you found a video of me as a kid playing baseball I would freak out I would love to see a video of myself in the 80s and early 90s, playing baseball. My dad would probably be in it because he was our coach. And I would have this huge nostalgia for it because I would have never really seen any videos like that. Like some people took some video back then, but it wasn't a lot and it was kind of clunky and how you could save it and share it. So I would be really excited. And if you think back to my dad's generation who were kids in the 60s, very unlikely for them to have a whole lot of video taken of them doing much of anything. And if you go back to my dad's dad, my grandfather's generation, J.P.'s generation, people that grew up in the 40s, like, the idea of there being video is crazy. Like, they've got a few black and white photos of their childhood, and that's about it for most kids, if any. So the tape that we're looking for is kind of a rare find. So let's get into the case. How do you approach it? How do you approach solving this case i know what i'm looking for some sort of tape of a football game from 1948 and i know there's a connection to omaha my first thought road trip i'm packing up the car and i'm driving 1800 miles to omaha and i'm not leaving until i find somebody who knows something about this omaha team or this tape and so i ran that by my wife and she said what's wrong with you are you crazy She said, you don't know anything about Omaha. I said, well, it's in the Midwest. I think it's a farm town. She said, really? And did you know that Omaha has over a million people living in it? Sheesh. So I scrapped that plan. Idea two, Google. I grew up with an internet connection. JP is in his 80s. Maybe he can't search and find it, but I'm pretty good with Google. Maybe I can find it. Maybe I can find something that way. So I started searching keywords. Omaha, Pure Packs, Mighty Mites, Pop Warner Football, anything. Anything that I could search that might yield a hit. I told a friend of mine about what I was working on, and he got his interns to spend two full days Googling keywords. Nothing. Nothing. We found exactly nothing. Okay. Idea three. A friend of mine who's in marketing said, what about if we ran targeted ads on Facebook? Targeted towards people in Omaha who liked football, who were older, and something along the lines of, did you play in the Santa Claus Bowl in 1948? Were you an Omaha pure pack? Do you know of one? But the more we thought about it, what's the chances that someone in their 80s spends a bunch of time on Facebook and clicks on random ads. So we scrapped that plan. And at this point, I was really at a loss until I remembered that JP had told me that they were local heroes for a while and that they had been in the local newspaper after their big win. Here in Lynchburg, we have a place. It's called the Jones Memorial Library. And at this library, there's this great archive of historic documents. In addition to that, they have microfilm of every newspaper from the Lynchburg area back to the 1800s. So I know that the Santa Claus Bowl was around Christmas in 1948. So I go there, pull the microfilm for December 1948, I pop it in the machine and start scanning and scanning and scanning and looking for something in the paper that might have something about the Mighty Mites, something about the game that may give me a clue They can help me break open this case. So, on the front page of the sports section for the Sunday Morning News, December 19th, 1948, I see this headline, Miller Park 11 captures national title. And there's a big picture of these boys playing football, and it says the Mighty Mites beat Clickettes to take the title. And I think, wow, this little Sandlot football team made the front page of the sports section. That's pretty amazing. So I expand my search, and I start looking at the weeks ahead and the weeks after the game to see if there were any other articles about them. And what I find is they're in the paper just about every day for the whole month leading up to the game. They're first mention on November 23rd when it says Miller Park accepted for the Santa Claus Bowl. And then on the next day, there's a picture of the Mighty Mites with their coach, Happy Lee, and it says Mighty Mites making plans for their big trip. And then over the next week, there's little profiles about each player, and then one story that starts to emerge is that the boys need funds to go to Philadelphia, and they're trying to raise money. And so it becomes this public push to raise funds. And every day, if someone gave money, 5 $10, their name would be put in the paper. And it's a lot of names of local businesses and individuals, and it really was this community effort to get the boys to Philadelphia. And then on December 16th, two days before the game, the paper announced that they have over $1,300, which is what they needed to send the boys to Philadelphia. And then even their trip is in the paper, their bus ride, their sightseeing, they're checking into their hotel. And then finally, I get back to the day after the game where it announces that they beat Omaha in the semifinal, and then they beat Philadelphia in the final. And then after the game, they continue to be in the paper about how they're welcome home as heroes. And all of this is really cool, really, really cool to me. But none of it gets me any closer to finding an Omaha Pure Pack player. And so I go home from the Jones with all this great information, but nothing really leading me closer. And when I get home, my wife asks, "How was your day at work?" And I say, "Oh yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good." She's like, "What were you Were you at the Jones again?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, I, I just feel like I'm getting really close on this case." She's like, "You just you just gotta you gotta stop." I said, "No, I know, but I just feel like I'm, I'm right on the edge." So the following week... I find a day to slip back over and just see if I missed anything. When you're scanning with microfilm, you're scanning really fast to try to get from one section to the next, and there's a chance you can miss something. And so I'm scrolling back through, seeing a lot of the articles I've already seen, and then on Sunday morning, December 5th, 1948, on the front page of the sports section, there's a picture of a football team that says, Omaha's representatives in the Santa Claus Bowl, and on their jerseys it says, the Roberts Pure Packs. And then below, in the caption, it has the players' names. Their position, their first and last name, their weight, and their age. And this is a huge clue. Instead of just looking for random people, I've got actual names. Names like Winston Scott, and Gene Morris, and Dick Christensen, and Bert Jarvis. And this is it. This is the clue I knew that I needed. I can't wait to get home and start Googling these names. So I get home and I start Googling the name of the player, Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm not really getting anything because some of their names are kind of common. And most 80-year-olds don't have a huge online presence. So I start looking for unusual names. And one name in particular sticks out to me. It's the 96-pound, 11-year-old guard, Andy Nastase. And that seems to me to be kind of an unusual name. So I Google Andy Nastase, Omaha, Nebraska. And the first result is Nastase Roofing in Omaha. And I click on it. And then the About Us page, it says, Our company was started by our father, Andy Nastase, in 1960. And I think, man, that could work. If he's 11 years old in 1948, then he's 22, 23 in 1960. You could start a roofing company that young. Yeah, that could work. So I dial the company's main number. Click call, say a prayer, and listen to it ring. Hi, is this um, Nastase Roofing? Am I saying that right? I don't know. <laughs> Nastasi. Okay, Nastasi. Okay, so I have kind of a a weird question for you and I'm not selling you anything. <laughs> um I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia, and I was looking for Andy Nastase who I was who I think played on a 1948 Pop Warner football team. <laughs> and um I don't know if that's the same one. It didn't seem to me like a super common name. Um, but I have a friend here. 48. <laughs> and it turns out that I'm talking to his daughter. But she says those dates don't line up. And that her dad, Andy, wouldn't have been old enough to play in that game. He would have been 11. It it would have been um, for the Omaha Pure Packs. It's a Pop Warner team. They went to Philadelphia and played in the national championship and they played the Lynchburg Mighty Mites. And then she says, Oh, you know, I remember something about this uh, a Pee Wee football team and something about a film. Okay, so there was a film. So she goes on to tell me that quite a few years back, all the living members of the Omaha Purebacks and their families, went to a museum and watched a film of the game. And she said she didn't think that her dad had a copy, but that I could call the museum and maybe see if they still did. But she said that her dad is still alive and still comes in the office every now and again, and that she would take my name and number and get him to call me. So, while I wait to hear back from Andy, I called the museum. I live in Lynchburg, Virginia, and... um. I'm looking for a tape, a DVD, Um, and I heard that you guys might have it there. What it shows is from 1948. It shows a Pop Warner football team, the Omaha Pure Packs, playing against a Lynchburg football team, a bunch of 11 and 12-year-old kids. I, I think it's an actual DVD. I don't know. Um... Yeah. And I don't think it's going to be in the gift shop. I think it's going to be in the archive, but I don't know. Like, it wasn't like a produced DVD. It was like one of the kids transferred some old tape to a DVD, I think. Long story short, they were super helpful but had no record of it and wish me luck on my quest. So, I'm back to waiting for Andy. So I wait, I wait. I'm wishing he would call the same day, maybe the next day. About a week goes by, and I'm like, well, maybe he just doesn't want to talk about it. You know, Omaha did lose to Lynchburg, maybe this is a touchy subject. And so I start getting back on Google with some of the new information that I have and start doing a little more searching. And at this point, I need to tell you about the namesake and the sponsor of the Omaha team. The Omaha team was called the Robert's Pure Packs. And that's because they were sponsored by Robert's Dairy. Robert's Dairy is one of the biggest dairy companies in the Midwest. And they had a special product called the pure packs remember those little cardboard things where you'd open the top and drink your milk out of it in school lunch well before like like in the 40s that was kind of an innovation and that was their big product so they wanted to kind of get the name out there and why did they sponsor the team because the owner of robert's dairy james gordon roberts his son was on the team and looking back through some of the newspaper archives using that as a search keyword I found that James Gordon Roberts actually paid for the entire team and their families and a Hollywood film crew to come to the game in Philadelphia. They didn't need to raise money. He footed the bill for the whole trip. And he hired a film company to document the game. Which, let's be honest, that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, I'm so glad that he did it, but that's really a crazy thing to do. And then I keep searching... And as I search James Gordon Roberts, I find one really interesting hit. At the Nebraska State Historical Society, they say they have a folder of his personal documents and correspondence from the 40s. And I need to read those papers. So I call them up, and they say there's dozens of pages in here, and for a fee, they'll copy them and send them to me. And I'm like, immediately, let's do it. I need to see what is in those papers. So I get them by email, and... They're almost entirely about Pop Warner football. They're not about his business. They're not about his personal life. They're almost entirely about Pop Warner football in 1948. And what you see are these letters that he's getting telling him how the Roberts Pure Packs name is being mentioned in newspapers across the country because they've sponsored this team. You see a Western Union telegram from Pop Warner himself talking about the upcoming championship game. You see a letter from the City of Lynchburg Athletic Director as they make plans for the upcoming Santa Claus Bowl. You see a handwritten letter from the Roberts Pure Packs that says, Dear Mr. Roberts, thank you very much for making our dreams come true. The team will try very hard to come through with a win or two. We will do our best to be a credit to Omaha in showing good sportsmanship and good manners. Sincerely yours, Roberts Pure Packs. And then there's a Western Union telegram from John Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. And it says, I'll be delighted to have the Santa Claus Bowl team stop by and visit FBI headquarters when you're in town for the big game. I mean, that's amazing. It doesn't help me solve the mystery of the film, so I got to move on. But that is amazing. And while these papers are really interesting and it's helped me fill out a little bit of backstory On why there's a film and how their team came together, it still gets me no closer to finding the film. So, really, I'm waiting on Andy and hoping he's got some lead on where a film could be. And another week passes. And one day, I'm out in my yard throwing the baseball around with my son. And then I notice I have a missed call from a 402 number. That's an Omaha area code. And then a voicemail pops up. You have two unheard messages. First unheard message sent today
1: at 5.57 p.m. Uh, Billy, this is uh, Andy. Miss Stacy in Omaha, Nebraska. Evidently, you had called my office and talked to my daughter about uh, the Santa Claus football game that was played in 1948. In
0: uh, Philadelphia. Best voicemail in my life. I call him right back, and he answers, and he's so so kind. Oh uh, well, so you you were a, a a guard on the Omaha Roberts Pure Packs, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, it's good to. I've been looking for a player from the Pure Packs for a while now, so it's good to finally talk with one. And so Andy and I talked for a long time. He tells me all his recollections of the game and that whole trip to Philadelphia, which was a big thing for a little kid in the 40s. And he definitely remembers the Mighty Mites and how big and fast they seemed. And after a while of reminiscing, I say, got to ask you about the tape. I've heard that there's a tape of the game, and it would mean the world to my friend. And he says, oh yeah, I know about the tape. And I asked, do you know where we could find one? And he says, yeah, I've got a copy. And I'm blown away. And I say, I'll pay whatever it takes to get a copy made or get it transferred from VHS to DVD or whatever, and I'll pay for it to be shipped. He goes, oh, no, I've got a DVD right here. I've got an extra one. I'll drop it in the mail to you today. And man, I'm just... I'm over the moon, I'm just so excited thinking about getting this tape in the mail and getting it to JP to see it. And he goes, But but you need to know, this tape has a story. And I honestly hadn't thought about it. I mean I hadn't really thought so much about the tape's history. I really was just thinking about how do I get it and get it to my friend. But now he got me curious and I said, you, you've got to tell me this story. Tell me the story of the tape. And he said the story goes that James Gordon Roberts had a Hollywood film company come and do a tape of the game. And the tape was done by director Harold Chenoweth, who was actually from Omaha and Nebraska's first film producer. And early on in his career, he had done promotional videos for local companies to be showed in movie theaters before movie screenings, before moving out to Hollywood and pursuing a film career with major stars of that era. And so that's the connection between this local dairy company and this Hollywood film director. And the story goes that when Harold moved out to Hollywood, he put all of his 8mm film in boxes and put it in his daughter's basement. And there it sat for at least 50 years. And then Harold's son, Bob Chenoweth, who was also in the film business with him, came to Nebraska to visit his sister. And at this point, his father is dead and gone, and Bob's in his 80s, and his sister tells him, you need to get all of dad's junk out of the basement or I'm taking it to the landfill. So Bob can't see all this old archival footage thrown away. So he takes it back with him to Hollywood, puts it in storage and forgets about it for a little bit until eventually he decides he wants to go through it, kind of reconnect with his dad's early work. And he starts to see the most amazing things, home videos, snapshots of life in Nebraska in the forties and around that time period. And one of those tapes has a peewee football game. And a tape like that may not be meaningful to most people, but to the 20 or 30 boys who played in it, it'd probably mean the world. So he had that film restored, and he had the sound that went with it restored and paired back up. And he went back to Omaha and gathered all the boys together at a local museum and showed them this film from their childhood. A truly gracious and kind act. And Andy told me it was a very, very special night. He said, but we didn't get a copy of the DVD, even then. And then his son-in-law went out to California and went on a cruise. And while on the cruise, he met an old man who was a Hollywood film producer who happened to be from Omaha, too. And they got to talking, and it turned out it was Bob Chenoweth. And Andy's son-in-law said to him, it was an incredible thing you did for my father-in-law and all his teammates, but I know my father-in-law would love to have a copy. And Bob said, I didn't give you a copy. I'll get one to you right away. Then not long after, Andy got a few DVDs of this 1948 Santa Claus ball. And so he says, you don't understand how many things had to happen for there to even be a tape of the game, for me to even have a copy of the game to give to you in this moment. So many things had to go perfectly right. It's a miracle that I have a tape to even give to you and I couldn't argue. It absolutely was. So we finished up talking, and I thanked him so much, and then I waited by the mailbox for a couple of days. And then one day I get a box, postmarked Omaha, Nebraska, and I open it up to find a DVD with this note attached to it. Billy, I hope this video of that game in Philly so long ago will bring a happy face to those who will watch it. It was such a thrill to be a part of those who played in that Santa Claus Bowl. It's been fun to hear from you and tell all the others not to laugh at how bad we were. Andy Daisy, And I'm forever grateful to Andy for being willing to talk with me and send this to me. So I immediately get the DVD out, throw it in the DVD player, and I actually recorded my reaction in the moment because I was so stunned by what I saw. Oh my gosh. Um, I just went to the mail... There was a package from Nebraska, from Andy Nesdase, with a note and a DVD, and I just popped it in, and it's unbelievable. It's not like some terrible silent video of poor quality. It's like professionally produced with announcing commentary, shots of the crowd, i just seen J.P. snap it a few times. The Mighty Mites just scored on a sweep right by Ronnie Vaughn. Oh my gosh. J.P. is going to freak out. It's unbelievable. It is better than I could have imagined. Oh. Holy smokes. This is so good. I'm recording now because I'm not sure I'm going to accurately be able to display how excited I was when I saw this. Oh my gosh. So, that tape was so amazing that all I could think about was how do I reveal this to JP? I want it to be special, but I want to get it to him as soon as possible. And we thought about a lot of different ways to do it, and I eventually decided that I'd have to let his wife in on the secret if I really wanted to pull it off. So I called up Kay and told her what I'd been working on. And when she stopped crying on the other end of the phone, (laughs) because she knew what it would mean to JP, we started thinking about a way that we could surprise him. What we decided was, is that I'd invite him over to my home to do another interview for the podcast. And hopefully that wouldn't raise any suspicions. So a week or two after, JP and Kay come over Me and my wife are here, and we talk, and we talk, and we talk. And then finally, I sit him down in front of the computer, put a mic on him, and say, I'm ready to do the interview. But instead, I press play on this DVD. And here's his reaction. So I had a couple people that had some follow-up questions. But before we get to that, I want to show you something that I found, something cool that I found that you might find interesting before we get started. So let me see here.
1: Oh my God. How did you find it? Oh my god.
0: The Robert Stary. Did you notice that? As soon as he saw the Robert Dairy logo at the beginning, he knew exactly what it was. And this is a good time to let you know that this video actually has sound. There's an announcer announcing the game. And it has color. It's in full color. You know how crazy that is for 1948? I would later find out that this same director had done a film of the 1941 Rose Bowl between Stanford and Nebraska. And when he had done that, it was in black and white. So this is truly amazing. So the four of us just sat, stunned watching it.
1: From North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Nebraska, four great football teams are here in Frankfurt Memorial Stadium to battle for the annual Santa Claus championship of the world. The players are grade school boys, under 14, under 106 pounds. We'll bring you the game between the mighty mites of Lynchburg, Virginia, and the Robert <laughs> players of Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> Lynchburg is right. one line kick, almost blocked by Whitmire. Weiner takes the ball, tries to run with it, is smeared by five Virginia players. God. This Omaha, is unbelievable. <laughs> first on their own 30 yard line. Pee Wee Adams in the tailback. Ball goes to Bert Jarvis. He tries left guard, slides off left tackle. Up three hours before being brought down. I did a great job not level. letting you know. That. Oh, I know you sure <laughs> did. You're in the right.
0: And as he watched the game, JP just took it all in, pointing out his fellow teammates and telling us about them. And he started to look up and down the sidelines, hoping to maybe catch a glimpse of his dad, who had been at the game but had been dead for many years now. And by the end of the game, all he could think about was getting this to his teammates. He just wanted them to share in the joy of watching it. So I went back to the Jones Memorial Library here in Lynchburg, and I told them the story and how their archive had helped me find it. And they were so excited by it, they asked if I would come and give a lecture about this Mighty Mites tape. So I said yes, and I told JP about it, and he was thrilled. And what he did is he decided to turn this lecture into a reunion. And he started tracking down all his old teammates and their families who were still alive. And he told them, there's a copy of the tape, come out to the Jones for this lecture, hear about how it was found, and watch the tape together with all these Mighty Mites and people who love the Mighty Mites. So the big day came, the room was packed, and I got to tell them this story that you've just heard. And at the end, I got to show them the tape. And what was really cool was when the boys went to Philadelphia originally. Only two or three parents got to come. So the boys really never got to hear the cheers of their family and friends when they actually played the game. So before we played the tape, I told people this is a library, but you cheer as loud as you want when Lynchburg scores. Let these boys hear it now, 70 years later. After the game was through, I invited J.P. up to read the names of the players. And J.P. got to share a few words about their coach, Happy Lee, and what he meant to them.
1: He's talking about Happy. Uh, all of us, it, I wish they were all here, but over half of them are gone. But everybody felt the same way they were happy. It, it was like a then And he was the key.
0: And in my research, I pulled Happy Lee's obituary. He died in 1987 at 78 years old. It read, He will be remembered for coaching the 1948 National Championship Mighty Mite football team and the countless boys that he helped through the years. And at the end of the night, those five Mighty Mites stood at the front, and the crowd rose to their feet to cheer for them.
1: This is what we have here for you today, and we've sorted Leah. Uh-huh.
0: And the greatest gift that I was left with, when all this was said and done, was a true friend. I didn't meet JP until he was in his 80s, but he's the kind of person that stayed open his entire life. He never shut off his circles or said, I'm done letting people in. He was always ready to let somebody in. And A few years ago, he let me in, and we became really good friends. We'd call each other on the phone go out to eat together, and we got to do some really cool things together. And earlier this year, I was working to put this podcast together, and JP's wife, Kay, called me. She said, JP's not doing well. Can you come to the hospital and see him? And so I came right over, and I sat with him for a couple hours, and he told me stories, and we laughed, and we cried together. And he knew the end was near, but he just wished he could break out of there so we could go see his granddaughter play in her soccer game. And a few short weeks later, he died peacefully at home at 84 years old, with his beloved Kay right beside him. And due to this pandemic, we haven't been able to have a service, to get together the hundreds of people that know him and love him, and remember him and honor him and tell stories and laugh and cry. And as I listened back to these tapes, I found myself crying tears of joy just hearing his voice, that kindness and that generosity that just poured out of him. And like that football tape helped him remember a special time in his life, all these tapes... Help me remember a special man in mine. For you that are listening, I may not know you, I may not know your story, but I hope you have a J.P. Vaughn in your life, someone that loves you, wants to see you grow, and I also hope that you are a J.P. Vaughn to somebody else, that you found some people that you want to pour into and love on. The world needs that so much right now. J.P. lived by a very simple creed that he got from his idol, Lou Holtz.
1: Number one is always do the right thing. And number two is to give people the best you have and then treat people the way you'd want them to treat you. The old golden rule thing. It's real simple.
0: Keep it simple and don't lose heart because the world needs you to love and lead just like JP did for so many years. Lynchburg Neighborhood was so blessed to have JP in it. See you next time.